Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Mats Villander, and you are listening to the Tennis Podcast. Well, hello and welcome to the Tennis Podcast for episode 33, which really does rather make the mind boggle as far as we're concerned. We only started this out for a bit of a laugh last May, but here we are in March of 2013, about to record our 33rd instalment of the Tennis Podcast. And boy, we have got lots to talk about today, including our star interview, which is Sue Barker for the second time. She was that good in the first one that we decided we would have have her on again. Well, actually, what we did was we, we did a long interview and decided it was too long, so we split it into two parts. So second part coming today, we know that the first part went down very well indeed, in which she talks all about the uh, the troubles she had after playing that Wimbledon match in 1977. She described it as hurtful and harrowing and said she was never the same again afterwards, but uh, obviously went into a fantastic TV career presenting for the BBC. And in fact, it was her 1000th episode of, of A Question of Sport, and she was hosting uh, the celebration of that recently. And she talks to us on the tennis podcast today about Andy Murray and the experience of interviewing him and him crying on court she talks about uh, uh, the the great players of this current era with Murray such as as Djokovic and Nadal and Federer and she also talks about the women's game as well and gives a very interesting insight into who she regards as the greatest player of all time in the women's game so more of that from Sue Barker later I'm David Law I'm happy to say I'm joined by Catherine Whitaker back from the heat and the sun in Florida in Delray Beach Catherine how was it hello back with a bump to uh, to British normality. It was great. It was really, really good. It's a really nice event, that one. Yes, indeed. And it's it's uh, nicely by the beach, as the uh, as the title of the place would suggest. And you had a, a playing field of uh, of John McEnroe and Mark Philippoussis, Mats Verlander. What was the tennis like? Was John in a, a good mood? I'll tell you what, he really was in a good mood. He, he showed up and he had a bit of a bit of a back complaint which he apparently obtained whilst shoveling snow at his New York home um, John McEnroe yeah, shovels one, snow? One would think that he, he has someone to shovel snow for Has him, he not got an official snow shoveler well, on? Well you think, on... he said his wife asked him to do it so um, you know Well I wouldn't want to mess with her I have to say <laughs> she, she is the, I mean if you think John McEnroe is the boss in his household, think again I can tell yeah, you that. Yeah quite, so yeah he showed up with a bit of a back twinge but didn't seem to uh, show on the court. He was he was playing brilliant stuff, and uh, we had one rather bizarre evening. It was the big night session match uh, between McEnroe and Verlander, and uh, about ten minutes before they were due to go on court, this is about eight o'clock, eight thirty. Uh, we had a sort of mini storm followed by torrential rain, followed by a power cut, and the whole stadium and site and everything. 
Um, so there was a huge delay with that match and, and the rain continued and we were all sat in the player lounge, you know, wondering whether we'd ever get to bed that night. And uh, Matt's was all for, well, you know, Matt's is pretty easy going. He would have done anything, you know, the referees and the tournament director, you know, were worried about the crowd not hanging around and, you know, the disadvantages to, to John was not having any of it. He was going to play that match that night, come hell or high water. He would have waited till 2 a.m. <laughs> uh, in the end, they did get the match on at about 11 and boy, was he pumped up. And uh, in fact, there were about several hundred members of the crowd that had stuck around in the rain um and the atmosphere was fantastic they all came down to the lower bowl so it you know the the crowd that was there was very intimate and john was quite um struck by how many people that had waited around to see him and actually in his celebration after that match he uh he offered everybody that had stayed free tickets for the final tomorrow. So uh, with, without consulting the tournament director, but it, it, <laughs> it, was, it was an offer that uh, the tournament were able, able to honour. So uh, that was really Superb. nice. Nice That's touch. That's great. Nice story. Absolutely. And of course, uh, you're on your travels again next week, aren't you? Stockholm is the next stop on the ATP Champions Tour. It was the first event there uh, last week, the Kings of Tennis down there. And it's got a rather different tournament director, hasn't it? Thomas Enquist, the one and only. Yeah, and uh, he's not a uh, figurehead tournament director. He is a getting down to the nitty gritty, you know, sat in an office all day tournament director for that event. He takes it very seriously, and um, well, he did a great job last year, and I'm sure he'll uh, he'll do an even better job this year. So um, I, I'm looking forward to that one. Has he got the uh, the uh, the tournament director frown that all tournament directors have to have when they're looking really stressed about the way it's going? He doesn't. He because he, I think it may be because he's Swedish. You know, they they do neutral very well. He might be <laughs> frantic un, under under the surface, but on the surface, he's uh, he's very calm. And he does have a uniform though. A uniform. Yeah. All of what the does it consist of? Well, it's sort of a suit with a vague sort of colour scheme, as I remember. A sort oh. of uniformed shirt with some kind of sort of colour schemed tie, as I remember. Okay, oh, I quite fancy that. You'll have to bring one back for me. I think I'm about the same size as Thomas Johansson, uh, Thomas Enquist, rather. If I was the same size as Thomas Johansson, we would have problems, my <laughs> word. Uh, anyway, I think we need to talk about the week that's just gone in tennis aside from uh, the ATP Champions Tour, because in Dubai we had uh, a couple of the, the very biggest names in tennis, Djokovic winning that tournament, Roger Federer losing to a man who's increasingly becoming part of the argument at the top of the men's game in Thomas Burditch. Interesting stuff out there. Yes, I think I would agree. I know we've disagreed a bit in the past about Thomas Burditch and, uh, and uh, you know, I've said he, he still needs to prove that he is the real deal in terms of breaking into the top four. Well, I think I wouldn't say he's proved it yet, but I am, you know, sensing a bit of a breakthrough. You know, there's a big piece about him on the uh, ATP World Tour website at the moment Thomas Enquist, um, Thomas, Enquist Thomas Burdick the, the coming man and it seems strange to talk about him in those terms because I remember him being the coming man when he had his breakthrough win over Roger Federer at the Olympics in Crikey, 2004 yeah, and that was that was oh. nine years ago and that was yeah. seen as a you know him announcing himself onto the world stage so it seems a bit bizarre to be talking about a win over Federer again being sort of re-announcing himself but I think that top four is just they've got such a stranglehold on tennis you know such is the game it's taken him nine years to really mount 
a challenge and I think just possibly he could be within sight of, of breaking into it. Yeah, I mean, I think the advantage he has is he has lots of experience now. He has the game, and we've talked about how Thomas Burditch has the perfect tennis player physique. He has all the weapons. He has the easy power. But he also seems to have sort of physical durability in terms of he doesn't look like he injures easily. And he still looks young. Even though he's sort of mid to late 20s now, he still looks like a young man. Uh, I mean, he's just signed up for the Aegon Championships at Queen's for the first time in eight years. I mean, that shows his longevity. He hasn't He's only ever played there once before, eight years ago, in 2005. But I find that an interesting decision by him. I mean, he's just revealed that his new manager is Ivan Lubacic, the former world number three, who who basically consulted with him and decided, let's start playing at Queen's before Wimbledon and see if we can go one better than in 2010. Interesting move. Yeah, it is an interesting move, and in particular because he's obviously realised, you know, albeit possibly with a you know a, a pointer in the right direction from from Ivan Lubchic's new manager but he's realised that you know he's doing well but something he obviously has to change a few things to 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 make make that next step and um, he is doing a few things differently and um, I I would like to see him make some moves I think it would be it'd be good to see him do more than just have these one-off big victories and and to see him string it together a bit and reach another Grand Slam final I think it'd be good for good for tennis. Yeah, it would be. It wouldn't. It might might be something as well if he, if he won a, a Grand Slam, Catherine, that would make him cry. And it reminds me of that because the fact is, one of our our talking point for the week is when tennis made you cry. And we've been asking all of you on Twitter uh, for your examples. I've had to man up and admit a few of mine, and that's what I'm going to do a little bit later. Catherine has got them coming out of her ears. Yeah, She's I feel like I've been tears. stitched up a bit here because well, crying in sport is is one of my many Achilles heels. It's it's a special talent that Catherine has, and uh, the lip quivers at the uh, the merest drop of emotion on the court, and uh, off she goes. So anyway, we'll talk about that uh, a little bit later, and uh, we have many examples from yourselves on Twitter uh, to back that up as well. Roger Federer, he has is going to have a two month uh, layoff now, isn't he? After the Indian Wells tournament, to uh, to sort of rest up a little bit. Not going to play in Miami. Interesting move, isn't it? But I think it shows the stage of career that he's at yes it is a very interesting move I, I sort of have my question marks about how how he's allowed to do that that really I mean well I can tell you I mean that the reason is that because of the amount of matches that he's played in his career there's a rule that states that you no longer need to have all of these designated is that Masters so? 1000 tournaments I think it's because is, he got to is that a rule like that has 600... been intru- is that a rule that has been introduced at the behest of Roger Federer by no, any chance? No, I mean no? he. Let's not forget this guy has pl- played more than a thousand matches, and he's. I think you have to have a certain amount of match wins. I think it's something like six hundred, and once you've got past that stage, you only need to play a certain amount. I think it's. I think you you play one less. Um, Masters 1000 events. I better better oh, wow. be, be careful here because I'm not exactly sure on the wording of the rule. And then there's an amount that when you get to your, into your 30s as well. And he's now at a position where he doesn't actually have to play the Masters series events anymore, uh, meaning that if he doesn't play them, he doesn't get fined, he doesn't get sort of oh. any penalty. Well, so, I have to say that sounds like quite a sensible rule. Why wouldn't you want to preserve your your best players for as long as possible? You know, it's especially in, it's in everyone's interests. For, for and they've effectively earned. He's earned the right. 
is yes. the point uh, of that sort of rule. Uh, so, though, so, I mean, decision, it, it, you you have to spare a thought for the events that are going to miss out on him being there because you know that yeah. that's not an, an, a negligible loss for them. And it's and it is something Subaka references in her interview a little bit later in the tennis podcast. She talks about how Billie Jean King was always encouraging the players to play the events because they're the future of tennis and and they owe it to the sport and all this kind of thing but let's be honest what 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 does Roger Federer need to do more for the sport that he hasn't already done he'd be quite within his rights to retire from the whole thing right now having put in all the work in that he has I think you've just got to take it on the chin I do feel sorry for the Miami tournament I mean it's a great event and uh, they're going to miss out with him not being there but uh, I think you've just got to say fair enough Roger Federer for that one personally Agreed. Yes, I am. Um, I'm quite. I don't like disagreeing. Catherine. I know. Well, but I'm. I, I wasn't aware of the details of that rule, and uh, from what you've said, it all sounds very sensible. So. Okay. Uh, all right. Well, we we have the Catherine Whitaker seal of approval for yeah. that one. I'm sure we'll find plenty to argue about in the next few minutes. Well, Roger's been listening, waiting for that. Just just checking yeah. that it's all all okay by me before. Yes, he, absolutely. Yeah. Roger Federer is now off on his holidays <laughs> after Indy Wells. Now that he's got the Catherine Whitaker nod. Uh, Rafael Nadal in Acapulco uh, won the tournament and is going to play in Indian Wells, which I have to say, if I'd have been a betting man, I'd have said he wouldn't have played. Fair play to him for that. But more importantly, Catherine, he throttled Nicolas Almagro and David Ferrer back to back. Rafael Nadal is back. Yes, for me, this this victory is more significant than his victory in Sao Paulo and his final. Uh, his yes, his victory in Sao Paulo and his final in in uh, Chile put together. That I mean, beating yeah. Marquis clay court players and beating them in the manner that he did. Um, that's that's quite something. This is something to really take seriously now. And um, in terms of the French Open. I, I don't see any reason why he's he's not the favourite now after that. Well, I don't know. Djokovic might have something to say about that, wouldn't he? Given the I mean, when did the guy well, last lose? I can't even remember. But when did he last play on clay? So you know. Yeah, but I, he, mm, I'm not sure. I think Novak Djokovic is looking at you right now, Catherine, and all of his fans, and they're saying, "Just a minute, just a minute. This bloke hasn't played for seven months. I've been dominating the sport in that time. You, See if anybody can beat me." Do you think Djokovic would have beaten David Ferrer, Love and Two, uh, on clay in in that final? Do you think he beat he beat Thomas Burdich uh, in straight sets, and Burdich had beaten Federer. Hard He's court, beaten one Martin Del Potro in straight sets. Hard court alert. We're talking clay here. If we're yeah, talking well, hard courts, I'd be saying something completely different. We're talking long clay. time to go. Long time to go until uh, the, until the the heart of the clay court season. And I think Djok- I mean Djokovic, according to the bookies. Uh, is the favourite marginally from from Nadal just at the moment? Interestingly enough, you could actually get eighteen to one on David Ferrer and twenty two to one on uh, one Martin Del Potro, which uh, are quite good odds. Yeah, those are if yeah, I've I've never placed a bet in my life and and don't, don't quite intimidated by the thought of stepping into a bookies. But if I was so inclined, I think those odds sound rather tasty, really. Well, being the craggedy old man that I am, I sort of uh, prop up the bookies' uh, counters <laughs> on a regular basis. Well, no, I don't. Uh, however, uh, I do know a little bit about that, and, uh, and I have to say I think those are quite good odds. Not that I'm encouraging any of you to bet. Uh, but uh, what I would say is that uh, Nadal looked like the old Nadal in Acapulco. I mean, and as you say, those results really back that up. I just, I just think that 
there's still a long way to go and and uh, how are the knees we just don't know I don't disagree that there's a long way to go and although I'm delighted that he's going to be playing in Indian Wells um, I'm I'm a wee bit concerned because I, I, I just I'm, I feel like a nervous mother about his knees uh, you know I feel like saying no no stop it just wrap them up in cotton wool and save yourself for the for the French but I, you know he knows what he's doing. I trust him. I'm sure he'll be, oh, be that's fine. Right, so he, he knows better than <laughs> me. I just It just makes me a bit nervous. But Ernest Golbis, Catherine, a man that we have uh, watched almost with the same level of bated breath as uh, as Grigor Dimitrov. But Golbis is a man that I think everybody in tennis has been thinking, this guy is going to be something big. He's got all the talent in the world. He has explosive ground strokes. He has a Marat Safin-like temper. He has a, a, a turn of phrase in press conferences that amuses us all. And yet we never know whether he's going to be a top 10 player from one week to a top 300 player the week afterwards. But he is just one in Delray Beach. Yes, I saw him on the uh, plane qualifying at Delray Beach. I, I glanced over onto one of the outside courts and I saw the name Ernest Gulbis and this was over qualifying weekend and I thought what on earth is he doing playing qualifying at an ATP 250 event what what is going on here you know this isn't where he should be and then lo and behold he he goes and wins it and uh, that that's more more like it you know that is where he should be but um, the problem is, this is the man that beat Thomas Burditch in the first round of Wimbledon, a match I commentated on for Five Live, and then the next round he lost. This is the problem we, we have with Gorbis. Is he going to back it up? We just don't know, uh, do we? I'm not sure he is. You know, I, I'm not sure can how much. I, I didn't. I, I didn't see a reformed character in Delray Beach. You what know, are you and and for? we wouldn't want him to be an entirely reformed character, as you say. He's he's intriguing. He's compelling. He's in many ways, in terms of intrigue, great for the game, but in terms of frustration, also quite high on the scale as well. So, um, But we believe in you, Ernest. You can do it, son. Absolutely. I remember the first day he broke onto the scene, beating Tim Henman at the French Open, and, and he's, oh, I, th- I think he can do it still. I think there's, there are some big results still in Ernest Gorbis. What, what would you describe as doing it? What, what's reaching his potential? Oh, dear. Well, the potential, I mean... My problem with him is I just don't think he can do it for three years in a row. I think he might do it for three months in a row. And then I just don't, I don't – I'm not convinced that he will do it ranking-wise, but I think he could do it at a Grand Slam tournament and cause some huge damage. I think he could knock out one of the top four in the world at a slam in the next couple of years. I think he's that – he's oh, capable the, uh, of that. I, I entirely agree. I have no doubt in my mind that he has – that win in him but uh, as you say you know but if he doesn't get his if he doesn't develop some kind of consistency and get his ranking up then he's going to be outside of the seedings and he's going to be faced with having to play a major seed quite possibly in you know in the early rounds of of every slam he enters and then you know to make any kind of dent in the draw he's looking at having to string together a number of you know wins over over players ranked far higher than himself so 
Sorry, Ernest. Catherine's giving you the thumbs down at the moment. You've got lots to prove, son. Uh, anyway, uh, lots been happening in the last couple of weeks. We had World Tennis Day a couple of days ago. That was uh, a couple of massive exhibitions, one in Hong Kong, one in the, in New York, with uh, Madison Square Garden being filled to the rafters by uh, Juan Martín del Potro, Rafa Nadal, Serena Williams and Victoria Azarenka, all to promote uh, uh, tennis as a whole uh, the world over. And it was supported by the ITF and all the... Uh, the national tennis federations trying to get people to play the game so all good news in the women's side on the WTA tour we had Sara Arani winning in Acapulco and Anki Othavong reaching the doubles final in Florianapolis uh, Catherine yes lovely for Anne isn't it oh, I um, I was notified uh, about her reaching the doubles final by Twitter she was absolutely beside herself it was really sweet to read how significant that result was for her um so um it's just a nice good news story isn't it somebody reaching their first final and even though even it being doubles you know being so chuffed about it and um yeah it's just it's uh Good news for Anne. Yeah, let's have lots more of those. Well, we also had uh, Heather Watson uh, signing up for the Aegon Classic in Birmingham. She is going to be the uh, the first uh, British seeded player there, apparently, uh, I'm reading. Wow. And uh, Yeah, so uh, good news for that tournament in my neck of the woods. And Indian Wells starts today, in fact, the first round of the women's draw. And uh, my word, the men's draw has thrown up a, a nice-looking potential quarterfinal, Catherine. How about Roger Federer against Rafael Nadal in the last eight? How do you fancy that? Oh, I, I fancy it. I just don't want to see it. And it doesn't feel right, it being a quarterfinal, does oh, it? Oh, don't be daft. We just need to have it on the centre court. No, and, no, I mean... And really enjoy it. Fanta- absolutely fantastic. It's just, They've hardly it's just played any, bizarre any more than anything to see so that I mean, I, as a potential quarterfinal matchup rather than a, a final matchup. But, I mean, yeah. mouth-watering. I cannot wait. Yeah, I mean, Assuming I remember it um, there were so there've been so many almost um, semis and finals between those two at the U.S. Open, and they've never got to see that match in New York so far. So, I mean, it really would be great. I mean, I love the Indian Wells tournament. I was there in '07 and '08, and uh, it's kind of mini U.S. Open in many mm. ways with the night session, all, albeit the most spectacular backdrop imaginable with the the mountain ranges and uh, and the the sort of clean air. Totally different in that regard to, to New York. Um, <laughs> But no, fantastic event, absolutely brilliant. Oh, I'd I'd love to go. My one of my uh, my parents went to Indian Wells about oh, eight years ago or something now, and my God, they were excited because it just looks fabulous on TV, doesn't it? It looks, as you say, the setting is wonderful, and you know, they, it, it's it's almost as good as as good as a slam because you know the lineup is always sensational. The weather looks beautiful. It it was they they had such bad weather they had to buy socks jumpers and a poncho oh for dear. the full four days that they were there and they have not stopped talking about it since it's, it's sort of the <laughs> yeah. single biggest regret of their sort of tennis spectating lives. Oh dear! Well, it is tennis paradise, and uh, we're not there. I'm sitting here in the Midlands in the UK, and it's dreary and grey and <laughs> raining, and Catherine's in 
in in London doing the same thing. And oh dear. Well, I, I get to go to Miami though in a couple of weeks, so I, I better shut up complaining now because uh, I'll be there for Five Live. And on the f- on the subject of uh, BBC Radio, in fact, and this is interesting news that uh, uh, Five Live are going to be providing as well as uh, commentating on Five Live Sports Extra uh, and updating on BBC Radio Five Live, which will start from today. They're also take got a team out there to uh, to supply the the ball by ball commentary for the official uh, BNP Paribas Open website. So the Indian Wells tournament website and their app uh, will carry uh, five live standard commentary throughout. They've got a team out there consisting of uh, of my colleagues Jonathan Overend, Philip Studd, uh, Nick Lester and Alison Mitchell, all great broadcasters. Uh, they've got some some really superb uh, summarizers as well. Bethany Mattox-Sands is going to be there uh, alongside many others uh, that we, we know very well, such as Neil Harmon. And, uh, and they'll all be broadcasting on the tournament website. So no matter where you are in the world, you can hear BBC... Uh, commentary on that uh, on that tournament so I hope you do tune into that I think it'll be really quite something uh, we should talk now I think Catherine to Sue Barker for the second time in about three or four weeks and we really enjoyed part one in which she was telling us all about her own career and her broadcasting career as well we spoke to her at the end of last year didn't we it was at the O2 Arena for the ATP World Tour Finals so the one or two ranking references that Sue and I make uh, no longer necessarily apply today because things have moved on. But Sue was in a unique position last year. She was the first person after Roger Federer to talk to Andy Murray after Murray lost the Wimbledon final. And this is what it was like for her. I mean, I was welling up. I felt so sorry for Andy. And I've kept wanting to say, look, you know, you don't have to do it. But in my heart of hearts, I thought you really do want to do this you know you know it would have been very easy for me to just say go Andy you know don't do it you know we'll do it later but I I kept the microphone there and kept because I thought you know I could see he wanted to talk and I knew the people wanted to share it with him and um, and in the end he's I think he knew that because eventually he came up and then he goes and he then burst into tears. He goes, I'm getting closer, I'm getting closer. And then he took the microphone because he just wanted to t- do it. And, and the speech he made, I think, showed everyone at home. Everyone thought he was quite a hard sort of, you know, heartless sort of competitor. And, and it, you know, what did it mean to him? Well, he showed everyone what it meant to him. And he showed a real softer side for him. And, you know, I just thought he just won so many people over that day because all you want from your sports people is to give everything and he and he did he gave everything in that match you know the roof was closed it all played into Roger's hands um, but as I mentioned there was pressure on me many years ago that doesn't compare with the pressure that is put on Andy even probably more so than Tim uh, at Wimbledon it I just can't imagine what he what he goes through for those well, four weeks because once the French finishes it's all the build up to Wimbledon and uh, and you know he just won so many people over and I know he spoke to Lendl and, and they talked about the match and the fact that you know you've got Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true baby. It's me Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. This edition of the Tennis Podcast is sponsored by Tennis Channel, and Tennis Channel Plus is the place to watch the French Open. They've got every court live, and you can watch on your phone or on your smart TV in HD. Sounds great. There's genuinely nothing I like more than watching multiple courts with matches everywhere. And can I just sit and watch court shows in Longland all day? You sure can, David. Wherever the stories are, the rivalries emerge and the generations clash, you can watch it all with daily live coverage beginning on Monday, May the 20th. Be there when it happens by subscribing to Tennis Channel Plus to stream daily coverage of Roland Garros. Use promo code TENNISPOD20 for 20% off your annual subscription. Not that out your system now. You're never going to have to play anything as intense and as mad as... The way he came out, and I was so privileged because I went at the Olympic Games to watch the tennis final, to sit there in like the third row and watch the final, which was almost like a perfect tennis match from Murray, to beat Roger Federer on the court four weeks later for the loss of just seven games. The way he played, I thought, my word, you know, you have just grown and grown and grown. And I knew then that a Grand Slam wouldn't be far away I've got to be honest I didn't think it was going to come that quickly but uh, I knew then that he had proved to himself and he'd got that Wimbledon final out of his system just as Lendl had asked him to do and that he was going onwards and upwards I, he is going right the way to the top as far as I'm you think he'll be world number one obviously I think he can be I really do I look at you know Djokovic and Murray and you know Look, Federer, you never write Federer off. You know, we've started talking slightly about that earlier in the year and the next minute he comes back and wins Wimbledon and and becomes world number one. You know, Federer's going to come back all guns blazing, you know that. Nadal hopefully is going to come back all guns blazing. But you look at the the physicality of the sport now. I mean, they are, you know, younger. You know, Federer is 31, Um, you know... They are in the peak of their fitness, Djokovic and Murray, the, the peak of their powers, you know, mentally, they're still so hungry. Physically, they are taking the game to just new levels. I mean, I just sit back and admire the way they play. I, I, it's just brutal to see the two of them and f- how they last. I mean, Djokovic, particularly with what happened at the Australian Open to do one against Murray and then come back and the match he played against Nadal I mean we were just we, we just thought he's, he's just you know he's going to collapse in a minute but he just finds a way of keeping going the fitness levels they've taken it to and uh, the way they play and uh, the amount they run I think these two are going to take it I think they are going to be the next big rivalry and I think that's going to be so exciting and I tell you you know Murray maybe has, has, has lost a few but I think he's going to be right up there matching him and he's going to he's going to win many more Grand Slams and finally, on the women's side, Serena Williams was the story of the year. Incredible wins at Wimbledon, the Olympics, the US Open, the season-ending event. Victoria Azarenka somehow seems to be top of the rankings, don't quite know how. <laughs> but we also have Laura Robson and Heather Watson who've broken through this year. It's an exciting time. I am so thrilled that finally we have um, some British women who look like they are on their way to the top and they are I mean Laura at the US Open I was just so proud of of the way she played we're looking for players we've always had players that could play well but could they play well on the big occasion can you play well 
in the big events. And Laura's proved that, and now, you know, Heather has as well. You know, they're growing up fast. They're, you know, one's just inside the top 50, the other's just outside. They are on the way up. And yes, of course, it's going to get tough for them because the more you go up the, the rankings, the tougher the matches get because you're expected to go further and you're expected to beat these top players. But, you know, they've proved that they can be right up there with, you know, the Sharapovas of this world and and uh, and stay out on court with them and, and, and maybe get to beat them. I think, you know, the next two years is crucial that they've got to carry on that improvement and not plateau you know now is the time you've really got to move I remember talking to Leighton Hewitt one time and he said when he broke out of the challenger type seconds he said I knew I had like a two-year window to make it otherwise I was back there and you do have this sort of two-year window because otherwise you get into a sort of a just into a grind that you you know oh I'm never going to make it you know you're, you when you get the momentum going you've got to keep it going and that's what they've got to do for them just work hard train you know be coached hard and, and, and make those improvements, you know, physically and uh, and technically and keep that momentum moving up the rankings. As for the top, I mean, I admire Victoria Azarenka. I mean, yes, she is the world number one. She chooses to play many, many tournaments. And, you know, Serena for me is, well, Martina would probably hate this, but the greatest player I've ever seen. And she is the player for the big occasions. It just seems that she just brings out her best when it matters. So, you know, hats off to Serena. She is without question the greatest player, even, you know, right now, even though she's seated uh, ranked three at the moment. But uh, she, for me, is, is the world number one. But it's important that players like Azarenka do play the tournaments because without the tournaments, you don't bring the youngsters through. And I understand why Serena's doing it. Because she has, you know, she's got other interests. She's older now. She's been there. She's won it all. She can pick and choose. She's earned the right to be able to pick and choose what she wants to do. Don't criticise her for it. I just think it's great to see her at the big events. And I want to see her at the big events. But I think for all the other players, you know, I hope they do commit to these other tournaments and keep, you know, keep those tournaments alive. You know, Billie Jean King said to us, you know, you are the future of the game. If you don't play at these tournaments, then the game is going to die. And the lesser tournaments, if you don't keep them going, you're never going to bring the youngsters through. And the, so it's, you know, the knock-on effect. So I admire her for doing it. And if she's rewarded with being world number one, I accept that. But who's the best? Serena. Do you think Laura or Heather could win a slam? Oh, that's a tough one. I mean, sure, they, they have the capability. And I saw... A new Laura at the Olympics playing in the mix with Andy Murray. Boy, she loved being on the big stage. And that is key, not to be intimidated by a place like the centre court. She isn't. Laura has certainly proved to me that she could, she certainly could win a Grand Slam. I, I, Heather I, has played exceptionally well and she will develop more weapons as well. I'd love to think so. I, I, as I said, the next two years will really dictate where their careers are going to go. They've made the move out of the juniors. They're now respected by the top players, and that is a major part, is to actually get the respect and that the top players know them and rather like, who's this British girl? Because that's how it used to be in years gone by. They've got the respect of the top players. Now they've got to show that you know they have the right to be there and, and as I said, continue that momentum. Once they're in the top ten, then the Grand Slams are just around the corner. So, Catherine, there is Sue Barker talking about all manner of things in tennis today and a rather interesting line there about uh, Serena Williams, in her view, being the greatest tennis player of all time on the women's side, greater even than her her colleague and her rival, Martina Navratilova. Yes, that's quite a strong uh 
<clears throat> quite a strong line from Sue, isn't it? Um, it's interesting. I asked the same question of, of John McEnroe in, in Delray Beach, and I won't spoiler the answer because I'm sure we'll 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 use that interview on the on the tennis podcast in in weeks to come. But it, it was a very interesting answer, and uh, I I I'm very surprised by Sue giving that answer because because of, of how, you know, intimately she was involved in that era and how, you know, witnessing firsthand the, the greatness of, of Martina Navratilova. But um, it's it, it's hard to argue with Serena, isn't it? I mean, her dominance. Be- because and her longevity for, as well. Her longevity, because for, for more than 10 years now, when she's at her best, she's been the best player in the world. I mean, she, she might not have been, at, you know, she's she's had blips, she's had setbacks you know all sorts of setbacks but you can't say that for the for the past 10 12 years at her if all players are playing at her best she is she's been the best for for 10 10 or 12 years which is quite something yeah no absolutely well certainly enjoyed listening to sue as always and one of the subjects she was talking about as well there was uh having to interview andy murray as he cried on court after the wimbledon final which was just something to behold really because i think okay uh, andy has cried after the australian open but to do it on that sort of um stage in front of the audience that was watching on bbc tv i mean an enormous audience in the uk a lot of people would never have seen that side to Andy Murray before. And it did get us thinking, didn't it, Catherine? When did tennis make you cry? So come Here on, tell go. us. Oh, come on, Catherine. How long, how long have we got? <laughs> <laughs> See if you can condense it into about three See minutes. See if I condense it. Well, all, all Andy Murray moments that you can imagine. US Open final, Olympics. Although, I, you know, during the Olympics, so it was it was more a case of charting when I wasn't crying than when I was. So, you know, that wasn't exactly an isolated incident. Um, Non-Andy Murray-related moments. Um, definitely the 2001 Wimbledon final uh, that Goran won. And the prior semi-final that Henman lost—that was that was a gut-wrenching one. 2009 Wimbledon final, Roddick. There were serious tears on that occasion. I was at a family barbecue and I had to excuse myself from the uh, f- from the main course <laughs> just to have a little sob. Uh, how, how how far back in Catherine, time? Catherine, <laughs> let's try and get into the psyche here. What is it? that happens that triggers these emotions mid or, or, or at the end of these matches? Um, it's seeing, I think, I think it's seeing emotions from the players. I've never cried at a Roger Federer moment because um, I Hold fight... Hold on a minute. What, what about when he cried after uh, Rod Laver gave him a hug after he won the title a few years that, ago and when he was lost nice. to Rafa on the down? That was, that was a beautiful moment. No tears from me, though. Why not? I, 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 it's hard to put my finger on it, but I think possibly because he, he's not relatable on emotion. And I, I just feel like he's a different species. What are you talking he's about? a different species to me. He's, you know, what sort of species is he? Well, he's too serene, too content. You know, I mean, the he's amazing. I, it's, I, I appreciate it and and marvel at it. But in terms of extracting some uh, some tears from me, it's not the. I tell you, I tell you what does do it. A, a, a musical montage. I'm a sucker for a musical montage. <laughs> Sporting musical Nicely montages manipulated. are. Uh, or another of my Achilles heels. And yes. something else is when people have their parents watching. 
um, that and seeing if I, I if somebody has their parents watching in the crowd I automatically support them I can't bear the thought of somebody losing with their parents watching that yeah, actually just reminds me. one of mine was definitely when Pete Sampras won his uh, his record-breaking uh, Grand Slam at Wimbledon in 2000 and he, he surpassed uh, Roy Emerson's record in that uh, in that moment and uh, and his parents for the first time were watching him in a Grand Slam final courtside and that that set me off I have to say yeah, oh, well, I, I. You're going now, aren't you? No, no. Well, <laughs> I, I just, I'm glad you agree on the on the parents front because. Yeah, no, absolutely. I just don't understand the Roger Federer one because, uh, you know, this is a guy who, in 2003, when he won his first Wimbledon title, collapsed in tears during the Sue Barker interview, ironically as well, and uh, and he was he was uh, the headline on the Sun newspaper the next day was Roger Blubberer. Yes, I know, but. Firstly, that was you know the very beginning. That was before Red Roger Federer was properly established as. So, as what Roger difference Federer. does it make between I, that I don't and, know. It's and not Andy that, Murray? That, that moment was obviously very emotional, but into, I just don't find him relatable. He's too good. He's too good, he and makes it look then, though, too easy to be relatable. I find tennis incredibly difficult. Roger Federer makes it look annoyingly easy. That's, oh, and that's Ro- why Andy I can't Murray relate. makes it look really tough, then, does he? Sorry. Andy Murray makes the game look really tough. Yeah, yeah, he he, he does. I can see the effort that goes into it. I can see, I can see the skill. I feel like, though though there is the obvious tremendous golfing skill, I feel like Andy Murray and I are made of the same particles and matter. I feel like Roger Federer is is. A different species to me. She's hard to please, isn't she? This country <laughs> way to go. Oh dear, oh dear. I'm saying I, he's I mean, too good. I'm saying you know there aren't enough compliments in the world for. But it's it's. I, I'm trying to put my finger. You know, you can't. I can't control when I cry or not. But I I know that I haven't cried in a Roger Federer moment. And trying to put my finger on why that is, I can only conclude that it's because I can't really relate to him. I've I've definitely cried in two. Absolutely, of his uh, when when uh, when he hugged Rod Laver. I mean, come on, yeah. any bloke would. I mean, you know, it's like hugging your granddad, who's <laughs> just saying you've done really well, and uh, and you've fulfilled all your all of his expectations. How can you not just crumple in a heap at that? Well, now your recounting of it, that's making me emotional. Oh <laughs> goodness me! Get it on YouTube. Oh, we've got to we've got to watch this at the end of the podcast. It was just amazing. Suddenly, Roger Federer couldn't finish his speech, and he was on the shoulder of Rod Laver, the man who, who he was so regularly compared to, and here he was proving that he was made of the same stuff and Rod was there to watch it and say well done son anyway I'm going as we speak uh, let's uh, let's have a few uh, contributions from our followers shall we on Twitter uh, Catherine what are people saying yeah there's been plenty of those um, number of votes for the Goran 2001 moment Sheila Fogarty who's a, a five live um, presenter who we know has a, a fairly large soft spot for Goran um, probably all began in 2001 she says uh when Goran was crying and praying in the last few games of his Wimbledon victory, Goran's tears and prayers, never seen desire to win, so unabashed, sport and human heart in action, marvellous. Well, yes. I'd say that's very well put. And uh, we, we, We've talked about that one before. Where were you again when you watched that one? I was in my school common room. 
Oh yes, you were, weren't you? And I was in the uh, the player lounge in uh, the tournament at the Swiss Open in in Stad, uh, where I was sitting next to Jeff Tarango and uh, Ivan Lubicic. And let me tell you, Ivan Lubicic was crying more than I've ever seen a human being cry. Wow, but that was quite something to witness. Yeah, well, absolutely. Number of people agreeing with that: Sutton Tennis, Phil Porter, Barry Danen all putting their votes in for that one. David Earl also mentions the Henman semi-final to Ivan Izovich, where he lost to Ivan Izovich. He said he cried on the tram on the way home. Strangers were trying to help me. Well, <laughs> bless. I, I have been in that kind of situation myself. So uh, I'm... I've had I've had a few actually, and this this is worse really because I've had a few listening to live radio commentaries where I've where I've gone a bit, you know. And the problem is nobody else knows what you're listening to. If you've got your earphones in, <laughs> nobody understands why you're absolutely collapsing in a blubbering wreck, and uh, and then trying to take out your earphones and explain to them is quite quite tricky i'm pleased to say there's a couple of votes for roddick uh losing the 2009 wimbledon final because for me that was utterly gut-wrenching uh, i've got yeah. matthew laird and mark black both voting for that uh that moment although mark black votes for it because he says he had he had men's finals tickets and he was convinced he was going to see murray win his first slam damn you roddick so slightly different nice. motivations yeah. for that one um, Rafa's Wimbledon win in 2008, that sensational final. We've got Sarah Jane and V-Man 15 both voting for that one. Uh, and now we come on to the Murray-related crying incidents. Uh, and it would seem that I'm not alone in, in having uh, several of those. The um, His runners-up speech at Wimbledon gets votes from Verity Buckingham Ellie and Ellie Lambert. Um, Ellie Lambert says uh, she was standing on the hill sobbing on the shoulder of a strange shoulder of a stranger when that happened so um, oh dear have you ever been have you ever been consoled by a stranger in a crying moment not a strange well not to my recollection I mean crying in the common room at school whilst watching whilst watching tennis was uh, I got a few strange looks from (laughs) teachers and the like um His Olympics victory obviously gets a lot of vote. You know, uh, Andy's leap of joy when he won Olympic gold, that would have brought tears to the eye of a wooden doll, says Elaine Patterson. Um, And obviously the US Open victory. You've got Rui Pires, Valerie Chisholm, David Eaglesham, John Morrison and Karen Robinson all voting for that moment. Um, Rui Pires says, Andy Murray winning the US Open last year. My spine still tingles when I hear Petchy's commentary. So um, that's a, that's a nice compliment for Mark. Petchy, oh, my isn't spine it? tingles when I hear Jonathan Overend's commentary. But there we are. Absolutely, you sort of got the Nothing feeling that Petch, you know though. the, the build-up for these guys like Jonathan Overend and, and Mark Petchy that have been commentating on Murray, you know, since the beginning and all of his finals up to that point. It sort of felt like it was as big a moment for them as it was yeah. for Andy. Almost, it was. And, uh, I have to say that it's um, it's quite weird commentating on these big emotional moments, you know, when you can't let it go. <laughs> <laughs> Because it wouldn't really work, I don't think. We also have a few wildcard entries for for people that have have cried in uh, other matches. Ian Warren said, well, uh, this is controversial, but I'm going to read it out so that we can be disdainful about it. Ian Warren says, during Tim Henman's career, I attended eight of his matches and he only won once, including four of the Opens and two Wimbledons. Stats to bring tears. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's factual, Catherine. it's factual that those stats bring tears, is it? 
Well, you know, if he's a no. big fan. That doesn't, he doesn't, doesn't down, sound he? like a big fan. Well, he's been let down, you see. Tim he's gone, Henman he's never gone let anyone down. He overachieved. Moving oh, on. Oh, well, you know. David Eaglesham uh, votes for uh, a match involving Bagdatis at the Australian Open in 2006 in the rain after be- beating Nalbandian. Yeah, that was a good one. Yeah, of course, the rain one. falling and he served an ace and and uh, managed to win that match. And it was unbelievable. Out of nowhere, this man from Cyprus gets to the Australian Open final with his uh, fans dancing in the stadium. Oh, that was great. Bagdatis is quite a good one for evoking emotion, isn't he? Yeah. Um, Liz Curran. Um, this is an interesting one. She says, I sobbed during the beautiful 2012 Australian Open 100th men's final ceremony with former champions Labour etc carrying the trophy around I'm not sure why it moved me so much just all of those winners from decades ago beautifully lit and of course no Andy I think she's not an Andy Murray fan but anyway no I think she is an Andy Murray fan and she's saying that that made her cry even more oh right okay Uh, sorry Liz uh, I've done you a disservice well I have to say I was involved in the production of that ceremony and I cried through rehearsals so oh well (laughs) Honestly, Brilliant. it was quite something. It was every living Australian, Australian Open champion. I think there were nine of them, all there. You know, Roy Emerson, Ken Rosewall, um, Rod Laver, obviously, um, John Newcomb, everybody. And it was so special. I think the way they produced it was was fantastic with the, the lighting in the stadium and, and the visuals on the screen, you know, of all of their winning moments. And uh, they had all of the champions in a trophy relay um, sort of around around the court and then Rod Laver emerged on the court with the trophy. Um, and my job was, was making sure Frank Sedgman did what he was told and uh, and carried the trophy from point A to point B. Um, and it, I, I'm glad that got a mention because it, it was moving and it was it was very well done in my opinion. Um, we've got a vote for R. Ah, Jay Armand Smith says she cries at her daughter putting ball to racket for the first time. She is one next Aww. week and rolls the ball on the floor with the racket. I am Bless. a tearful and proud mum. Brackets her dad is a, a tennis coach, which gives her a bit of a head start doesn't it so yeah, we are expecting to see though, her yeah. in a Wimbledon final in sort of 18 years or so I can re- I can relate to that though my my kids haven't started yet but oh dear yes oh I'm filling up as we speak uh carry on uh AJD says Yelena Dokic's run at the AO in the, at the Australian Open in 2009 was a weepy classic her story was so sad and she won through p- pure grit can't argue with that Simon Curtis oddly Sampras's seventh Wimbledon in the dark in the near dark, yeah. calls me to shed a tear. Um, That's the one I went yeah. for. Yeah, uh, Lara Nee Fergale says, "I find the oh, hang the, this is another controversial one. I find the inference that women are sobbing over tennis all the time not a little bizarre. Really, who on earth made that inference? Well, Lara, please rest assured that." there will be gender stereotyping on this podcast over my dead body. I think we're on fairly, <laughs> fairly firm ground there. Look, let's be honest. What I said I was, am. what I said was on Twitter, I said, come on, men, <laughs> front up, be honest. And the, the only reason I did this is because all of the mentions I'd had were from women who'd had the guts to be honest about when they cried over tennis. And I could see all these blokes who were quivering wrecks in the corner behind their computers, not admitting to any of it. And I wanted to bring them out. Fair enough. 
Fair enough. Right? And so I'm not sexist, so leave me alone. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on, Tommy Smith says, I've watched tennis closely, closely since 1970. Enjoy it, follow it, but it's never made me cry. Um, Richard, oh, yes, it has. I don't believe a word of it. Oh, there are some people that just just don't cry in in yeah, I'm sorry, Catherine. They're liars. They do. No, no. Everyone, everyone is different. I'm no. I'm not generally a blubbering wreck. It's just well, sport I mean, brings it out of me. And as we said, particularly those here. musical montages, they went they went crazy for musical montages over the Olympics, and I could I could barely hold myself together for the fortnight. Um, Richard Spatafora says when Hingis 2.0 retired, felt horrible about how she went out. Really upset me. Um, I guess that's Hingis retiring for the second time. Uh, yeah, yeah. Zafar absolutely. says Dementieva's retirement, which um, which is an interesting one. I I, I agree really because you know lots of unfulfilled potential there. You have to feel so. I guess uh, you know an element of tragedy in her in her retiring so early. And Tim Haim says when Sabatini retired, and that's just reminded me of mentioning retirement moments that's reminded me of another moment that i cried if i'm allowed another entry into the conversation uh agassi's last match at wimbledon when we knew it was going to be his last match he was beaten by nadal and he did his kisses to the to the four corners of the court as he always does um and he knew it was going to be his last match at wimbledon um that was very emotional do you know i've got one for for retirements as well the final match of stefan edberg's career um in 1996 and he did a sort of a, a year of honor a lap of honor mm. basically of, of going around to every tournament saying goodbye and and i think it is quite a weary uh thing to do wearying thing for the player to do emotionally to keep doing that going from tournament to tournament but when he got to the stockholm open in sweden his home tournament and he lost and the crowd just gave him the biggest send-off and all the players were there and and you saw Stefan Edberg in tears that got to me because I mean you know he's such a sort of you know he's not he's Mm. not an emotional guy I don't think by on a daily basis and and um and here he was showing what it all meant to him so yeah retirements can do can do that to you when you realize that you're not going to get to see these people ever again any more before we go Catherine no we that's it yeah close of play well I think I think Catherine, we need to go and have a little cry. Um, it's been it's been emotional and it's been fun, and I hope you've enjoyed the tennis podcast uh, with Sue Barker and Catherine and myself. And we are going to be back again next week. We'll have another big interview for you. We'll talk about how Indian Wells is going. We'll be into the the, the sort of heart of the tournament by then, and we'll be back and we'll speak to you soon. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm, HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 